0: Good morning, you know, as I uh, look out at six people um, this morning, um, I'm, I'm just so eagerly longing for us all to gather together, and I so look forward to that day, and, and let's make this our, our, our regular steadfast prayer, that the Lord would indeed be able to bring us all together again soon. This morning I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 11, uh,
1: verses 45 to 54, but uh, as we, it's really part of one passage, it begins back at verse 37, so I'm just going to read the, the whole passage, uh, Luke 11:37 37 to
0: 54.
1: While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you also insult us. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tomb. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him, It's something he might say. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning.
0: Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Sovereign God, we praise you for your holy word. For your word
1: is truth. For in your word we see Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate. Lord, I pray that this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal Jesus to our hearts. Lord, help us according to this word in the power of your spirit to clear away all the debris and every obstacle that obscures Jesus from our view. Lord, I pray that you would help us, all of us. Lord, to be sanctified, to be made more like Jesus as we behold him in this word. I pray that we would be lights to this dark generation, shining the light of Christ from the inside out. So that many, through the ministry of this local church, would themselves come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and be added to your church for the glory of your name. Amen. In ancient Greece, theater formed an integral part of the skull, of the culture. Stage actors would perform in amphitheaters before audiences numbering hundreds or even thousands. The plays were often either tragedies or comedies, most often based on pagan mythology. And The actors wore large masks to designate the different roles that they were playing, Communica- communicating the storyline by, by reading their part in the script and by using, using mime and, and gestures. And so from beneath this mask, the actor was, so to speak, an interpreter, an interpreter from beneath the mask. This gave rise to the Greek word for actor, Hippocrates. This is a compound word which means interpreter from beneath. And eventually the word became, the word came to refer to those who acted pious in order to deceive others. A hypocrite. In our passage this morning, a continuation of the passage that we started last Sunday, Jesus is condemning his opponents, the religious leaders of the day, by charging them with hypocrisy. As I said last week, we can really summarize this passage from verses 37 to 54 in the form of three positive commands to the religious leaders. In verses 37 to 41, clean on the outside. Verses, verses 42 to 54, care from the heart. Verses 45 to 52, carry with the word. And then we're going to see in verses 53 and 54, whether they responded with repentance and with obedience to these commands. These religious hypocrites are characterized by a contradiction between what they teach what they do. Now this isn't just the occasional failure to measure up to one's own standards. This is the deliberate flouting of God's law while calling others to obedience. In this case, it's even worse. Part of the the flouting of God's law involves imposing complicated and oppressive man-made rules to God's law that burden others. While at the same time providing loopholes for themselves that enabled them to, to circumvent God's law. And all the while they claimed to be those who expounded God's law to others. They looked righteous on the outside, but they were inwardly wicked. They hid their inward corruption behind a, a veneer of piety and legalism. The outside of the cup was fastidiously clean while the inside was filthy. Well, last week we saw that Jesus' target was the Pharisees. As a lunch provided the occasion for a stiff rebuke from Jesus. Intentionally ignoring the man-made requirement of ceremonially washing his hands before eating, Jesus shocked his Pharisee host. He created a teaching moment. Jesus revealed that it is what is inside, it is is what is in the heart that ultimately matters. Well, Jesus then proceeded to pronounce three woes, three pronouncements of of judgment upon the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He pronounced woe on them for their legalistic giving, woe for loving position, and woe for leading others astray. Imagine most of the, the stomachs that were there at that lunch opportunity, turned sour. But now, hitherto unseen, another guest pops his head up. It's a lawyer, also called a scribe. Insert a lawyer joke here. Well, the Pharisees were members of a religious Party. The lawyers or scribes were professionals. They weren't lawyers in the sense that we understand lawyers today. They were Torah scholars trained in the application of the law. As such, they were considered to be teachers of the law. It's a title that's used of them by Luke in Luke five seventeen. So, as such, they they viewed themselves as successors to the prophets, and that they were the ones who decided what obedience to the law required. And these lawyers played a key role in the development of the Mishnah that we spoke about last week that was central to Phariseeism. And many of these lawyers were, in fact, Pharisees. So then, in response to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees, the lawyer objects. I object, Your Honor. Just kidding. He says, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So if if Jesus is shooting at the Pharisees, then the lawyers as well are in his line of fire. That's true. But for a lawyer, he isn't very smart. Like an enemy soldier seeing his comrades-at-arms mowed down under enemy gunfire. He says, hey, over here. He should have kept his head down. Jesus is going to let the lawyers have it too. Just as he's pronounced three woes on the Pharisees, he now pronounces three woes on the lawyers. Woe one, you burden others. Luke eleven forty seven. 47. Woe two, you murder the prophets. Verses 47 to, to sorry, verse 46. Uh, woe two, you murder the prophets. Verse 47 to 51. And woe three, you hide the key. Verse 52, now while these woes are not expressly directed at us, they're, they're aimed at the lawyers, we still must be careful not to commit the same sins as these lawyers. We must be careful not to do the same things. Thus we come under the same condemnation as these lawyers. Woe one, you burden others. Verse 46, Jesus aims his sights on the lawyers. Woe to you, lawyers, also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In, in, in their interpretation of the law, the lawyers were adding to the law with the Mishnah. This, this system, a complex system of, of man-made laws that bound people to attempts to works-based Righteousness. The lawyers took laws like the straightforward fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 28. And added all kinds of rules to it. For example, the, the Mishnah contains specific rules and exemptions for carrying burdens in and out of a private, of a private domain. Specific rules for carrying needles and pens and ink. And paper with writing and without grain and oil and wine, diluted and undiluted, glue, honey, wastewater, grass, grain, beds with human bodies, live and dead, animal hides, manure, rubbish, and so on. there are pages and pages of this stuff, in fact, when I was looking online, I could see that these these discussions between people and rabbis or are still continuing to this day. And well, am I allowed to have a Gentile take out my garbage on the Sabbath? And there's all kinds of detailed arguments about this. But the whole thing is a pile of rubbish, if you ask me. But because of the position that the lawyers held, their word was law. All of these things became a burden to the people, a bondage. Now, the law clearly does prohibit work on the Sabbath. In Exodus twenty nine to eleven, the commandment is also applied to one's family members and and guests and and servants and livestock. However, and listen carefully to this: the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a blessing. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark two twenty seven. The Sabbath is a day to rest to take a break from the daily and weekly grind. A day to come together, and Lord, we pray soon, to come together to worship God. In the creation week, God rested on the seventh day. God did not need to rest. God does not get tired. God rested as an example to bless us with a day of rest. Yes, the Sabbath is a blessing. The same is true for for all of God's moral law. It's all meant to be a blessing. God has given us his moral law as a reflection of his moral character, of his holiness. However, in our sinful state, obedience to the law becomes not only undesirable, but impossible. And so
0: people add to the law try to live in
1: those additions to the law. People do the same thing today. They naturally resort to legalism in order to quietly to, to quiet a guilty conscience, in order to pridefully establish their own righteousness. So they set up a, a, an external system of rules. Think of Amish communities, where, where many technologies invented after the middle of the 19th century are considered to be a threat. But it's not just the Amish. There are cultural practices that, that can become elevated to the level of law. Now, clothing has been a cultural hot button for centuries. After the Reformation, there were sharp divisions over the wearing of robes, while preaching, as required by King Edward. Now some, like John Hooper, appealed to the regulative principle of worship saying that there was no biblical support for the wearing of robes. But on the other hand, Nicholas Ridley replied that the, the monarch may require indifferent things without exception. It's a fascinating discussion. It's one that, that really has direct applicability to our situation today under COVID-19 regulation. But that's not the only area of applicability. What would you think if I were to walk up to the pulpit in shorts? Would you be thinking, how disrespectful? Would you be thinking, well, he's free to wear shorts if he so desires? Would you be wondering, is he he trying to make a point? Or maybe, isn't he cold? Or I'm glad this church has a pulpit in order to hide his legs. That's probably the most likely one. But in Australia, it would be completely acceptable not just to preach, but but even to lead in the Lord's Supper wearing shorts and flip-flops. Dress is very casual there. I actually had someone rebuke me at a funeral. Well, as a general rebuke, but they they told me that I was overdressed for wearing a suit at a funeral. But at the other end of the spectrum, I know of a situation in Germany where an individual was disciplined out of the church for wearing shorts. And it's not because he had ugly legs. He was disciplined out of the church for wearing shorts. And it wasn't even at church. It was in the marketplace. And he's only allowed back into the church when he agreed never to wear shorts again. We are going to make a stand. We need to make sure that it is a biblical stand. There are times to set an issue aside out of love and deference to others. In Galatians, for example, the Apostle Paul goes to the wall against the Judaizers who were undermining the gospel, saying you cannot be a Christian unless you are circumcised. But in Acts 16, however, Paul has Timothy circumcised so as not to unduly offend the Jews he was trying to minister to. D.A. Carson offers a a modern application of this within the issue issue of alcohol. In many parts of the American South, for a significant portion of the church, any consumption of alcohol at all is considered a serious sin. D.A. Carson says that if he were to call to preach the gospel uh, among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, he says, I will give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian unless you drink, sorry, unless you, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, he'll reply, pass the port. Or, I think I'll have a glass of Beaujolais with my meal. Because it's an undermining of the gospel.
0: We have to be very careful be guided by God's word in these things and not to condemn those who have a different perspective. Joshua is going to deal more
1: with such issues in the next couple of weeks as he preaches Romans 14 to 15. It's been said that every mile of road has two miles of ditch. The narrow road of faith is, is bordered by, on the one side, the ditch of antinomianism, and on the other side, the ditch of legalism. Antinomianism is the rejection of law, and legalism is the attempts to use the law in order to earn favor with God. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees are Exhibit A of legalism. Those who spent so much time teaching others about the law. Added to the law. But they're also Exhibit A of antinomianism. Because in their additions to the law, they actually detracted from the law. They they obscured the law of God behind this this massive system, 612 different rules in the Mishnah. Jesus says at the end of verse 46 that they did not even lift a finger to touch the burdens they had created. They were hypocrites. They were looking for ways around the law. Jesus says in Matthew five twenty. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I remember reading this as a young Christian thinking, well, what hope do I have? These guys were like, were so religious. These guys were, were, were so holy. But the point there in, in Matthew, 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount is, 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 is showing how the teaching of the Pharisees is actually unbiblical. That The system of rules and laws was not the Bible. So he keeps on saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is showing himself to be the interpreter of the law, not these lawyers. These lawyers created and looked for legal loopholes in order to avoid the law. Listen to what the Mishnah says about the Sabbath. One who carries out an object into the public domain on Shabbat, whether he carried it out in his right hand or in his left, whether he carried it in his lap or on his shoulders, he is liable. But one who carries out an object in an unusual backhanded manner, so carrying a burden on on the back of his hand, or with his foot or his mouth. I hate to see carrying in a bag of groceries with a bag in your mouth. Or with his elbow or his ear or his hair or his belt. is his and faced downwards or upwards. Between his belt and his cloak or with the hem of his cloak. Or with a shoe or with a sandal. He is exempt. He's exempt from the law because he did not carry it out in the typical manner of those who carry. This is foolishness. It goes on. One who intends to carry out an object with the object before him, as if, as if he was walking, the object came in carried behind him. So if he goes in backwards, he's exempt. But if he tended to, intended to carry it out behind him and it came to be carried before him, he is liable. How on earth could people be expected to, to perform these laws?
0: Lawyers who saw themselves as teachers of the law looked for ways to break the law. But the problem was never with the law. Paul says in Romans seven twenty two, for I
1: delight in the law of God with my inner being. And he goes on in verses 23 to 25, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So you see what he's saying there? Is, because of his, his corruption, because of total depravity, is unable To keep the law. Even as a believer, because his heart has been changed to delight in the law of God and the inward man. He
0: concludes, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? Imagine if Romans 7 ended there. Wretched man that I am. Who would deliver me from this body of death?
1: Imagine if we didn't have the answer to that question. The Pharisees did not have the answer to that question. The lawyers did not have the answer to that question. But Paul, praise God, has the answer to that question. And we, praise God, through the Apostle Paul, have the answer to that question. Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's failure to keep the law showed him his need for Christ. Our failure to keep the law, not the law of the lawyers, not the Mishnah, but the law of God shows us our need for Christ. Jesus Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to satisfy its moral requirements in perfect obedience. Matthew 7, sorry, Matthew 5 17 to 19. Through faith Christ's perfect obedience is credited to our account. Yet, that does not mean we are free to disregard the moral law. Far from it, we are now free to obey the law in love and worship of God. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28-30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The lawyers came to keep burdens upon people but Jesus came to remove burdens by carrying
0: them himself.
1: So the lawyers rejected the law and the lawyers rejected Jesus. Woe to You murder the prophets, verses 47 to 51. Jesus says in verses 47 and 48, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Jesus is saying that these lawyers are participants in the murder of the prophets that was committed by their forefathers. The lawyers had the same murderous character as their ancestors. They're finishing the job that their ancestors started. Thomas Manton says it like this, they killed the prophets, you make sure they stay dead. The lawyers profess to honor the prophets while doing the same things that, that the prophets rebuked their forefathers for. He says, you reject the prophets. And you pretend to respect their graves. You lawyers claim to honor the prophets, yet you reject those who carry the same message as the prophets. And again from Thomas Manson, you're saying the only prophet you honor is a dead prophet. If if he isn't dead,
0: you'll finish the job.
1: Verses 49 to 51, Jesus explains that, that God, in his wisdom, sent prophets and apostles to deliver the word of God, but some were killed and some were persecuted. And in the mystery of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, this was part of God's plan, that, that God sent these prophets actually as, as a, a way to testify to the gospel, as they were martyrs, which the word martyr means witness. They were witnesses to the death of Christ, even before the death of Christ. The Apostle Paul in, in, first, in uh, Colossians 1.24, he says that he is filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now we know about the sufficiency of Christ's death. We know that, that he accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. So how on earth could, could Paul fill up, well, not, how on earth could anything be lacking in Christ's suffering? And, and how on earth could anything, how, could, how on earth could Paul actually add to that? By, in his own
0: sufferings,
1: testifying of the sufferings of Christ. The Colossians had never seen the, the sufferings of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul became a testimony of that by following in Christ's footsteps. The lawyers were doing the same thing as, as their forefathers. And so bringing the guilt and judgment of the previous generations generations upon themselves. The murder of the prophets is seen from the beginning of the Old Testament right to the end of the Old Testament from A to Z from Abel to Zechariah from the blood of Abel the son of Adam who's murdered by his brother Cain Cain killed Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's Zechariah the son of Berechiah mentions his own name in the in the, the eponymous book of, the, the, of Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament. Now, other than this, in this place here in Luke 11, the scriptures don't record his death. There is another Zechariah who is martyred in the Old Testament, though. Zechariah, who is martyred in Second Chronicles 24, the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament, because he warned King Joash not to abandon the faith and turn to idols. But I don't believe that this is the same Zechariah because the father of this Zechariah was Jehoiada. And the one that Jesus refers to is the son of, of Berechiah. And there also the fact that there were many, many prophets even after this Zechariah who were martyred in the Old Testament. Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18.15 that God would raise up another prophet, a prophet like him. But Jesus is the greater prophet. He is greater than Moses and Jesus is greater than, than any other prophet, just as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Hebrews three 3.3. The lawyers would try to silence Jesus too. They would lead the charge against the Lord. They would kill not just the prophets of the word of God, They would kill Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate. They hated the Word of God, so they killed the Word of God. The ministers of God's Word were mistreated and martyred in the early church as well. Jesus warns the apostles in John 16, 2, that the time would come that whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. We see this clearly happening in the book of Acts as the apostles are persecuted, as as James and Stephen are martyred. The ministers of God's word are even being mistreated and martyred today. We we pray for them every week. And I believe that that if the Lord tarries, we will see this happening even in our own culture. As the visible church, many in the visible church run headlong towards apostasy. In this city, in this city, most people, I'm not exaggerating here, in this city, most people who call themselves Christians reject the word of God. Check out for yourself what is being taught in many churches in the city. If you are going to reject the word of God, you are going to reject those who proclaim the word of God. Notice the term that Jesus uses to describe these murderers in verses 50 and 51. He he refers to them as this generation. Now he has just extensively referred to this evil generation as they rejected the sign of the kingdom of God in verses 29 to 32. And now he charges and condemns this generation with guilt for the murder of those who proclaim the word of God, these lawyers who consider themselves righteous are part of this evil generation, and our generation is an evil generation too. Those who reject the word of God are rejecting God. The tombs of the prophets bore silent witness to the guilt of the lawyers. while we're talking about tombs. Let's consider woe three. You hide the key. Verse 52. Have you ever lost your car keys? Some of us have done this repeatedly. You anxiously anxiously search everywhere, turning the house or wherever you are upside down until your keys turn up. Or in some cases, until you find out that one of your kids has flushed them down the toilet. I can think of a much worse time to lose your keys. Imagine yourself shackled with handcuffs, locked in a coffin, the coffin placed in a crypt, and then the crypt buried in six feet of dirt. Now, this is a very famous escape that the escape artist Harry Houdini pulled off in in 1915, but he almost died in the process. He had to be rescued as he only got his hand to the surface. And since then, only a few others have tried this escape. One died. Another had to be rescued after falling unconscious. I would never try this, this escape. I am claustrophobic. As a kid, I would panic if I got my my thumb stuck in a bottle. Might be wondering why I would stick my thumb in a bottle. I don't have an answer for you about that. Good question. Just recently, though, Jane had to rescue me when I had crawled under the boy's bunk bed in order to fix it, and I got stuck. And I, I I'm embarrassed, but I'm gonna admit it anyway. I I didn't quite scream, but I yelled for help. As I begin to panic. Anyway, I wouldn't try this this escape. Not a chance. But but maybe maybe you would. And there you are, handcuffed, locked in a coffin, in a crypt, buried under six feet of dirt. You have a trick up your sleeve.
0: You have the key. Or
1: so you think. You grope in the dark. You can't find the key. Frantically, you now claw at your shirt, seeking in vain to try to find the key. The air is starting to get stale. You suck in the last of the oxygen in that coffin. The last sound you hear is the sound of your own voice screaming for help as you pass into unconsciousness and breathe your last. Now, many people present company included would consider being buried alive as probably the one of or one of the most horrific ways to die but for the lawyers and those influenced by their teaching
0: the predicament is much worse it is infinitely worse
1: once the person in the coffin dies they're dead their body might not escape the coffin, but their spirit will. But for those apart from Christ, those who die in the second death, there is no escape. Questions forty-two and forty-three of the Baptist Catechism describes our plight. Our kids have been memorizing question forty-two this past week. It's it's very sobering. Question forty-two of the Baptist Catechism, but what shall be done to the wicked at their death? The souls of the wicked shall at their death be cast into the torments of hell, and their bodies lie in their graves till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. And question 43, what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked being raised out of their graves shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. These are the horrors that await all who reject Jesus Christ. These lawyers and all who attempt to establish their own righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. So Jesus continues his, his condemnation in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers! for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you have hindered those who were entering. Rather than open the Bible to teach people from the word of God, they shut the Bible tight by rendering its meaning indecipherable. The lawyers are supposed to teach the meaning of the law, but they instead concealed its meaning. The lawyers should have been teaching people the truth, but they were hiding it. The lawyers didn't have the key themselves, and they hid the key from others. Well, what then is the key of knowledge? Well, the key isn't ultimately a what, but a who. Jesus Christ is the key to the scriptures. Jesus Christ is the hope of the patriarchs. He is the point of the sacrifices. He is the king of the kings. He is the glory of the Proverbs. He is the wisdom. So he is the glory of the Psalms. He is the wisdom of the Proverbs. He is the promise of the prophets. He is the Lord of the Gospels. He is the message of the apostles. He is the anticipation of revelation. Jesus Christ is the key. The lawyers did not see him and they obscured him from others. They did not have true knowledge themselves and they blocked others from the same. And in so doing, they locked themselves and their followers out of heaven. Matthew 23, 13-15 says similarly, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. We see something
0: similar. So many churches today that
1: do not teach the whole counsel of God's word. They have substituted God's word with man's wisdom, where psychology and pragmatism dominate. And others where the, the so-called word faith movement has replaced true faith and the word of God is twisted in an attempt to justify and sanctify selfish desires. And others, Social justice is set up as a new law, a new works righteousness, but Jesus is absent from it all. The key has been hidden by teachers who promote these things. But we can't just think about those out there or are doing it out there. We can easily hide the key as well. We do so when we ignore the word. Or view it lightly and never actually read or study it ourselves, or do not do the same for our families. Or possibly even worse, when we we twist God's word in order to make it say what it doesn't say. We also can hide the key from ourselves, from our families, and from others we influence. So three woes, three very clear pronouncements of judgment on these lawyers. How do they respond? Do the Pharisees and the lawyers repent? Do they clean on the outside? Do they care from the heart? Do they carry with the word? No. Quite the opposite. Instead, they sought to catch with many questions. Verses 53 and 54. As Jesus left the house, they tried to entrap him. They tried to catch him in his words. They followed him. They interrogated him, asking him many questions in order to try to trip him up. Like expert crown attorneys, they were cross-examining Jesus, trying to get him to, to slip up so that they could bring some accusation against him. And so bring him for corporal and capital punishment. Now, the word that is rendered catch here is, is used of, of hunting wild beasts like, like a cruel spring trap. They tried to trap Jesus. But think of the wicked irony of trying to trap the word of God with the word of God. They couldn't. So they had to resort to all of this extra biblical material in order to try to condemn Jesus. And so as Jesus leaves this house, hostility is ramping up and we're being given insight as to why the Pharisees and the lawyers taught and believed a false religion. Those who claimed to worship God hated God. Jesus has just given his appraisal of the religious authorities. Their disapproval of his failing to wash his hands before eating becomes the, a, a key in the a major source of, of contention between them and Jesus. Jesus is the truth and the way and the life, but they are hypocrites. They are death. Those who are supposed to be pointing people to God are obstacles to true faith.
0: Now again, these Pharisees and these lawyers are the direct
1: target of Jesus' condemnation here.
0: But all of us have to admit that there are times
1: that we too are hypocrites. There are times that, that we too act in opposition to what we know and, and believe to be true.
0: So what's the difference? What's the difference between those hypocrites and these hypocrites? Well, the difference
1: between these hypocrites and you and me is not the lack of hypocrisy. Again, we can all be religious hypocrites at times. Are you a good actor? Or rather, are you a bad actor trying to look good? Maybe you're able to convince others, friends and associates and co-workers and neighbors that, that you are a good person by your outward displays of piety. What do those closest to you say about your character? What does your family say about your character? What does the Lord say about your character? Is your cup only clean on the outside? Maybe As you sit here listening to this, maybe your hypocrisy is part and parcel with that of the scribes and Pharisees. Maybe you're nothing but a religious hypocrite. Maybe your conversion is not real.
0: What is the difference between these religious leaders and a Christian? Well, the difference between these religious leaders and a Christian is not, again, the absence of hypocrisy. The difference between these religious leaders and a Christian is Jesus Christ.
1: Jesus Christ is the difference. Jesus Christ is the difference in the heart of a true believer because the object of worship of the true believer is Jesus Christ, where a religious hypocrite rejects Jesus Christ. Has Jesus Christ cleansed you from within? Has your cup been cleansed, not just on the outside, but but from the inside out? Have you received a new heart through the work of regeneration, the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again through Jesus Christ? Has Jesus Christ lifted your burden? Does Jesus Christ guide you with his word? Has Jesus Christ become for you the key that has opened the gates of heaven? May every hypocrite
0: who is hearing this right now, myself included, may we all flee to Christ who saves even hypocrites, by His grace and praise His people. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we
1: praise You for the gospel. Lord, we confess that we fail, that we sin, that we too easily act in, in contradiction to Your Word, in contradiction to You. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would expose that within us, expose it to our own hearts, that we might repent and walk in single-minded faith and obedience. Lord, I pray that if there are those who are hearing this as, as unconverted people, as hypocrites through and through, that you would cause them to see their lack, cause them to see their utter need, cause them to see that they are devoid of any righteousness. It's the only hope that they have, is the only hope that anyone has, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could never live but died the death that we deserve to die. Lord, I pray that, that for those who know this and believe this, that you'd cause us to lay hold of this so that our hypocrisy would be cleansed from the inside out. Lord and any unbelievers hearing this, may you grant them ears to hear and faith to believe and regenerate their hearts that they too might be cleansed and become trophies of your grace for the advance of your kingdom, for the building of your church, and for the glory of your name.
0: We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.